Welcome back to Jewish History Matters. I'm Jason Lustig, and today we're joined by Saul Noam Zaret to speak about Jewish American literature, its place in world literature, and what this tells us about how we understand modern Jewish history and culture at large. It's the focus of his recent book titled Jewish American Writing and World Literature, Maybe to Millions, Maybe to Nobody where he explores a number of Jewish writers who were working in Yiddish or in translation, including Isaac Besheva Singer, Sholem Ash, Jacob Gladstein, Saul Bellow, and others, and what their work tells us about the transformation of modern Jewish culture. In addition, we'll talk about what all this means when we think about modern Jewish studies and how we understand it in its broader cultural context. Saul Noam Zaret is an associate professor of Yiddish culture at Harvard University. He studies the politics of translation in modern Jewish culture, and he's a founding editor of In Geveb, a journal of Yiddish studies. His book, Jewish American Writing and World Literature, Maybe to Millions, Maybe to Nobody, which will be the center of our conversation today, was published in 2020. He's currently at work on a second book entitled A Teich Manifesto, Yiddish Translation and the Making of Modern Jewish Culture. I hope you'll check out the book, and thanks so much for listening to our conversation today. So hi, Saul. Welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thanks. It's a real pleasure. Uh, a couple of years back, uh, you, know, you joined us on the podcast for another episode. We were speaking then with Jessica Kirzain about Ingeveb, which is a journal related to Yiddish and Yiddish culture. It's just wonderful to have you back you know, on the podcast, this time virtually. I think last time when we spoke, we were both in Cambridge in person. Totally different world now, right? But it's just wonderful to, to have you back. No, it's certainly a privilege to be on this highly respected podcast twice. You know, when we talk about this book, the title is Jewish American Writing and World Literature. And then the subtitle is Maybe to Millions maybe to nobody. And there's a lot to talk about just starting from that. I think that over the course of our conversation, we're going to talk about this big picture issue of what is the relationship between Jewish literature, however you define that, which is itself a major issue, right? You know, what is Jewish American writing? But what is this relationship with with kind of the broader world culture, right? World literature and beyond, you know, and then there's also this somewhat curious subtitle. So what do you mean when you talk about the idea of Jewish writing, quote, maybe for millions, maybe for nobody. That's actually a quote from one of your authors. Sure. The quote is from Isaac Besheva Singer, uh, the Yiddish Nobel Prize winner. He he won the Nobel Prize in 1978. This is an interview. It was his first English interview, which he gave in 1963. Isaac Besheva Singer was born in Eastern Europe, emigrated to the U.S. in the 1930s, and was a Yiddish writer for all intents and purposes, you know, wrote exclusively for Yiddish audiences. And in the post-war period, he started dabbling with translation. And beginning in the 1960s, he started translating himself and being published in pretty prominent venues. Eventually, by the 1970s, the New Yorker had first read a refusal on any short story that was translated. So he was going to be making it the big time. But here in 1963, he's just sort of starting out to find some success in English. And he has this interview you know, and the English interviewers are worried that he might not be writing to anybody and what that might mean, how that might be devastating for a writer. And 
Bashevis admits that this this kind of devastation of writing, especially in the post-Holocaust period, can debilitate a writer in some way. Bashevis immediately gestures towards this very vague constituency, which is maybe to millions, maybe to nobody, which allows him to do a lot of different things. Um, he can say, you know, maybe to nobody already puts you in this kind of art for art's sake mode, like writing towards the ether in some way, or writing towards some great a universal that doesn't even need uh, an audience. On the other hand, maybe to millions can be a reference to him being suddenly in translation and having access to ever-expanding audiences, right? So he's not just writing for Yiddish readers, which is dwindling in the post-war period, but rather for American audiences, Jewish-American audiences, global audiences, suddenly through the kind of global purchase that English has. And so there's something of a tension that, he, that he's admitting here, even if it's a kind of self-serving tension between different ways in which his writing may be understood or the kinds of locations in which his writing might eventually find its home or some potential home. And so maybe to millions, maybe to nobody articulates for me a kind of uncertainty about what it means to write as a Jewish person in America and for the world, a kind of undecidability between different modes of writing and different kinds of audiences or different kinds of vocabularies that inform the very act of writing itself. I think this is just like a really interesting vignette, which I think you actually start the book with. I think it's the first paragraph that highlights a number of different things. As you mentioned, this is from one of Isaac Bashava Singer's first interviews in English, maybe even the first one, right? So it really is, it's a, it's a liminal moment of Bashava Singer and his transformation into becoming this, you know, this author who has a huge audience, you know, and so he is kind of considering, you know, what might happen, right, essentially, in terms of his his writings. And you know, he, of course, at the time doesn't know what will come, you know, 10, 15 years later. So I think that there's something very interesting here to think about this moment of transformation, both for Bishava Singer, but also very broadly, of the development of Jewish culture of Yiddish, specifically, but also beyond that, in the post-war period, uh, in the American context specifically, and, and so on and so forth. Do you maybe perhaps want to dive in here a bit more into thinking about what this idea that Jewish cultural output, writing in Yiddish, for instance, like Isaac Bashava Singer, or even perhaps much more broadly, what is its potential audience, essentially, in the post-war era? What is the context here of this kind of transformation that you've really touched upon just with this one story about these different things might happen. And we saw that in the case of Ajit Puseva Singer, he ends up writing for millions, right? So what is going on here in the broader sense? One of the ways that I think about this is to think about institutional legibility, or what it means to see oneself as part of an institution or just to express a desire for access to membership within uh, and legibility within a particular institution the institution of literature, say, or the institution of world literature, or American literature as an institution. By institution, I mean uh, this sort of fantasy of some kind of system in which one can find a place within it, which one can say, this is how I may be identified, or I can be identified with, by others within this institution. And one of the things that is so attractive about institutions that it, it affords a certain amount of security. You are known and knowable. You are translatable within that space. You can be transferred from one place to another. Um, there's a sense of there being a possibility of circulation between different kinds of institutions or what otherwise might be called a network. 
you can be found, like I have this node, this is where I'm located, this is my address within the Institution of World Literature. Take Isaac Bashevis Singer in the post-war period. He wants to have some security for his writing. He wants to give it a home in some sense. And so he, the natural home, the home where it's born in in some ways, is the Yiddish literary world, but it itself is very unstable. It's, it's falling apart in some ways. And so he can look towards American literature or something you might call Jewish American literature or world literature as a possible place where that kind of security can be found again, legibility, and of course, longevity. There's a kind of eternity that can be a given to his writing through this universal category that one might call world literature. There's a kind of horizon of meaning that is very beneficial for his writing, at least superficially. But at the same time, that there's always a gap when thinking about desire, right? There's this desire for this institution, desire for legibility within world literature. But at the same time, there's all this stuff, what I call sort of lingering vernacularity within the writing itself that makes that transition very difficult or announces certain moments in which, you know, there's parts of Isaac Bashevis Singer that don't make sense in within this institution called world literature. There's a kind of stuff that doesn't actually translate or was never possible to be translated in one, in one way or another. And yeah, so I think that part of what you're getting at here is Bashevis Singer's desire to be affiliated with kind of a universal literary sphere, as opposed to a specific Jewish one, on the one hand, but also the challenge that perhaps in some way, even as he you know, became you know, a part of the institution of world literature, that his literary works were still in some ways anchored in the specific Jewish sphere or even in the specific language of Yiddish, even though it's being translated into English. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that we need to ask is what does it mean to name a piece of literature or an, or an object as Jewish? I mean, this is not a new kind of question, but one of the things that happens in the literary realm is that the word, word Jewish means very specific things and can attach certain kinds of meanings or cultural capital to it. And so for Isaac Bashevis Singer, it was important for him to be named as Jewish. It actually gave him a sense of legibility. It wasn't the same name Jewish that gets attached to his Yiddish writing. In Yiddish, Jewish means something different necessarily within a Yiddish cultural sphere, whereas in world literature, he has to perform a certain kind of Jewishness. So Isaac Bashevis Singer, especially into the, you know, into the 60s and 70s, would perform a certain kind of identity for his American and English reading publics. He would become this old world storyteller. He seemed to like jump out of the shtetl, this kind of mysterious wise man that came out of the shtetl to unpredictably and impossibly give them truths from the past that were relevant to the modern uh, present. Whereas in reality, Bashevis Singer's writing, especially those about uh, you know, American culture or about Yiddish culture in America, were devastatingly critical. They weren't always magical. They weren't always folksy. They were full of all the kind of difficult and complicated realism that makes up fiction of the 20th century. He, but he chose, especially at the beginning of, of his translational life, to curate a very particular kind of Jewish identity that would make sense within that institution. That, of course, changed over time. And he started translating other things and he became, you know, he became a more complicated figure in English afterwards. But beginning, he had to sort of seize on what it meant to be named as Jewish within a particular sphere. You were just describing uh, a moment ago about Isaac Bashevis Singer's desire to be affiliated with some kind of universal literary world. And think about like where his papers are, right? You know, this also ties into this question of academic affiliation, being affiliated with academic institutions and what that means and what that represents. 
But the papers of Isaac Besheva Singer today, like the actual archives of his manuscripts and his, you know, his other kinds of materials, they're here at UT Austin uh, at the Harry Ransom Center, which is a wonderful, wonderful archive, which has uh, among its different areas of focus, uh, literature. They have the papers of numerous uh, leading authors and so on and so forth. But when you're talking about this transformation of Isaac Bashevis Singer into a figure of world literature, as opposed to specifically just Jewish literature, it's also this question of where is it that his literary estate actually ends up? It doesn't end up at a quote unquote Jewish archive, you know, a place like Yivo, for instance, you know, where you might think that that institution like Yivo would have loved to get their hands on one of the leading Yiddish authors of the 20th century, but that's a whole separate issue. The point is that his papers end up being deposited at a leading institution of literary research in and of itself, as opposed to something specifically Jewish. And I don't know if you want to comment on that. I, I imagine you actually were here at UT at some point did your research for this project. Yes, I'm, I won't get into the history of how Bashevis's papers ended up at UT Austin and the acrimony between him and Yivo at times. And um, just in general, I'll say that, you know, the Yiddishist community had a lot of trouble with Bashevis and harshly critiqued him, sometimes out of jealousy, sometimes out of a sense of his having betrayed the Yiddish literary community for having gone to translation over and above any kind of loyalty to a particular vernacular sphere. After all, translation rights for Bashevis's writing up until very, very, very recently, and I think even now, for the most part, all translations into foreign languages go through the English versions of his works and not directly from the Yiddish. So there's a kind of sense of him identifying himself, he would, he would say this, that he thinks of his English life as a second original as compared to the Yiddish version. So there's a sense of him in some ways being anti-Yiddish. I, I know it's sort of sacrilegious to say, but having a deep critique of whatever might be Yiddish institutional values and finding greater value in this kind of world literary sphere at the same time as being constantly drawn and feeling responsible for that vernacular past. Part of what I was just thinking about here, and I guess in a certain sense, this, this question that I posed just a moment ago about where Isaac Bashevis Singer's you know, archives are, it's, it's like a, a question that I would be the kind of person to ask, right? Um, uh, you know, but what I'm kind of bringing up here is not just the specifics of how it, that they end up here versus there, right? You know, and what the politics of that says about uh, Bashevis Singer's relationship with institutions like Evo or the Yiddish cultural sphere, kind of broadly speaking. But what is the significance of the fact that Isaac Bashevis Singer's papers ended up at a world literary institution, so to speak, as opposed to a, so to speak, a Jewish one? And what does that tell us about, kind of to come back to this original story, this initial story, what does that tell us about Isaac Bashevis Singer's earlier notion that maybe he's writing for nobody, but in the end, of course, he ends up writing for millions. Yeah, I think some of it has to do with prestige and trying to think about your writing as above and beyond parochial concerns and developing a kind of binary between what might be the Yiddish or Jewish sphere and its ghettoized version of itself and this ambition towards something else entirely. Isaac Bashevis Singer has three volumes in the prestigious Library of America series that collects his short stories. And so he has this ambition and this sense of being part of the literary establishment writ large. At the same time, though, just to sort of give you a sense of where some of this might not fit, is that Isaac Bashevis Singer's volumes in the Library of American series, you know, Saul Bellow has this has in that series, Philip Roth is in that series, and those two big writers, Jewish writers all, right, they have their novels collected in the Library of America series. Isaac Bashevis Singer, it's just his short stories. 
and he he never had a bestseller of his novels, and so he never he doesn't have the same prestige, right? He's still reduced to his folksy storytelling mode and never considered as part of American literature and its great prestige of the novel, right? The great American novel, and in general, the novel nowadays, uh, or at least in in the twentieth century, is often seen of as the measure of world literature. Right, you can write your short story, you can write your poetry, but that to become a world literary figure, one has to create the genre of the modern, the, the the genre that can contain the totality, or at least approach the totality of modern experience, which is often labeled as the novel. Whereas Isaac Bushev, a singer, there's something that he's connected to the short story that renders him in some way not fully at home within that institution, even if it's that's the kind of prestige, that's the kind of archive that he wants to be in. Yeah, so we've spoken quite a bit so far about Isaac Bashev Singer, but obviously the book is focused on a handful of different authors in the mid to late 20th century. So can we maybe broaden the lens here a bit? Do you maybe want to briefly uh, summarize the story here about you know not just Isaac Bashev Singer, but also these other figures? What is it that brings them together? And how is it that you're looking at them in a new way, considering you know that many of them are well-known figures. It's not like you're picking people out of the dustbin of the archives. So tell us a bit more here about the broader group of people who you're describing in your research. Well, it depends what you mean by the dustbin of the archive. I mean, one of the, the central figure of the first chapter of the book is, is Shalamash, who in his prime in the 20s and 30s thought that any one of the years in the 1930s, he was going to win the Nobel Prize for Literature. That's how big he was. He's also extraordinarily easy to purchase his books online in the translations to English because they were published in the millions. He was a bestseller. Of course, you can't get any new versions. His books are not in print currently. So Sholomash has sort of fallen out of favor. Um, he's often considered a kind of ecumenical writer. He's a famous writer of a, of a novel about the life of Jesus, turning Jesus into a kind of benevolent Jewish figure. And that's the only one that's actually still in uh, print. The evangelicals are really excited about Shalom Ash's novel about Jesus of Nazareth. But Shalom Ash, for me, is a figure of the first Yiddish writer who really imagined himself as belonging on the world stage. He thought of himself as a kind of ambassador of the Jewish people at large. And he functioned that way. He was a jet setter. He was traveling everywhere. He lived in Paris. He, he bought a, a villa in Nice, he, London, New York, um, he was sort of all over the place, sort of advocating in some way or thinking about literature and his literature as translated into other languages as having the capacity to bring world peace. That's literally how far he thought about the power of the literary world in this kind of interwar humanist utopianism that he thought of, uh, of literature having that function within it. And this, of course, earned him a certain amount of ire from the Yiddish world that thought of him also as writing towards translation rather than for the Yiddish literary sphere in particular. But it also earned him a lot of friends in lots of high places. And in the beginning of his career, already in Russian and having his own plays put on stage in Russian and, and German and, and across Europe. So he's a sort of very interesting figure for what I call monolingual world literature. The sense that everything can be contained in not one necessarily one language, but in a single vocabulary that for Ash he named as part of this sort of Judeo-Christian civilization in which Jews and Christians had equal authority in bringing about world peace in some way. This was a kind of way to be anti-fascist, but also anti-Stalinist and anti-communist, for Ash to really bring about a peace through literature, through this idea of everything being translatable, everything being uh, in some way communicable and redeemable. 
it was a grand uh, optimism that he had that was, of course, shattered in some ways. But it also happened through America, through his translation into English a lot in the 30s and 40s. He also, towards the end, imagined America as the utopian or pluralistic solution to the fascism that had overtaken Europe in the same period. So that's this kind of real grand model of, of world literature, monolingual world literature that Ash represents. And then I think really the heart of the book and the theoretical um, crux of the book is with uh, the Yiddish writer Yankov Gladstein, who was a Yiddish modernist, wrote, wrote mostly poetry, but also criticism and a couple of novels. He is a figure that's really the opposite of Ash in a lot of ways. He was against translation. Sort of this kind of utopian mode in which you value your vernacular inscrutability as your ticket to world literature, right? So that your your obscurantism is that which earns you value in some kind of world or universal idea of your world literature. And this is what I called a world literature to come. There's a kind of messianic tone to Gladstein's writing that you wait for recognition only when the world starts recognizing your language. That you will achieve world literary redemption only when it's articulated in a Yiddish, with a Yiddish word. So that's the sort of power of this other model, very modernist, informed by modernism, but sort of dedicated to its own vernacular inscrutability in some way. Not to say that, you know, uh, Glashtey didn't have his own ambitions in that way, and deep critique for both Ash and Bashevis as his, as kind of Nepres and rivals, but that he also sort of wanted to value that kind of vernacular home, or that kind of bringing one's modernism, one's global modernism into inextricably connected to one's Yiddish um, vernacularity. The other character is Saul Bellow as the sort of American version of this, the English language version of it. So Saul Bellow, a native Yiddish speaker from home, chose English as his language. And one of the main engines of his fiction and what he was praised for was its kind of hybrid or jazz-like nature in which he took a kind of gutter speak or a kind of American slang that he got from his immigrant childhood and raised it to some kind of sublime level. So his writing is always going through the mess of his Chicago home, his Chicago immigrant home, and trying to find in it and through it some kind of arrival within the American sublime and in with some kind of world literary sublime. He says in some interview later in life, you know, I was born into the cosmos and in, in that cosmos, I was a Jew. Right? So that the upper frame is cosmological, but that it goes through at least first a Jewish vocabulary that's then achieves some kind of transcendence. Now, this is what he wanted. He wanted this transcendence. One of the things I argue is that his fiction is really informed by an exhausting mode of compensation of trying to balance these two things and never really fully able to. That there's a kind of uncertainty to his fiction in its inability to actually understand its own vernacular longing. And that's what I call a kind of parochial world literature. All the other writers I've talked about until now are all men. And one of the conditions of being able to imagine yourself as having institutional power is often associated with a very masculine stance. So it makes sense, unfortunately and terribly, that many of the main characters and main figures of world literature are always men. And that I wanted to think about what it would mean to think otherwise with writers that try to short circuit some of these patriarchal trajectories for world literature. And that's through writing of Anamar Golan and Grace Paley, who both still think of themselves in global terms, but begin from intimacy and retain the intimacy of their writing, not necessarily essentialized as feminine, but as, as a site of political and literary action. So that, say for Grace Paley, one's life takes place 
in the kitchen, but that's also where global anti-nuclear war protest takes place. And so that those, those spaces are coincidental. You're laying out the literary stakes of this debate about who you're writing for and where a particular author might be hoping to or expecting to find an audience. I think that it speaks to really important intellectual issues as a whole. And also, I think there's a very important historical element to it here, which is how does this change over time, right? You're talking about Jewish authors, both in the early 20th century and also post-1945, right? In, in the mid-20th century, post-Holocaust. So when you look at a figure like Shalom Ash, for instance, who uh, is writing in the 1920s, and it's not just a story about the sort of like his transformation in terms of who was reading him, you know, which of his books are in print or accessible and so on and so forth. But it's also a bigger story here about the way in which Yiddish literature fits into the story of Jewish history in the 20th century at large, right? So do you maybe want to say a bit here about how these different approaches to the relationship between Jewish literature or Yiddish literature, how they change in the context of things like, obviously, like the Holocaust and you know, the destruction of the largest Yiddish-speaking public in the world, right, when we're talking about Eastern Europe. I and mean, that's obviously, I think, a major part of it here. But how is it that looking at these approaches to literature, how is it that they help us to understand Jewish literature in a new way, right, uh, and the question of Yiddish? And also, how is it that they help us to understand the historical transformations which are taking place around it and also contributing to these developments as well? Some of this I'll, I'll attribute to Ben Schreier, but that one of the things that dominates, I think, Jewish-American historiography and the study of Jewish-American literature is this narrative of emergence. That's what Ben Schreier calls a narrative of emergence. And one we might associate with something like the immigrant-made-good history of Jewish life in America, right? The sense of immigrants arriving, finding their place in the 20s and 30s, and then the post-war emerging and, and landing in the center, Right, and becoming the mainstream. And that's, in some ways, we, I could read the string of writers that I, I mentioned in that same vein. Right, You have your Yiddish writers like Gladstein who arrive and stay in Yiddish. And then you have these other writers who arrive and then become part of this emerging narrative and become part of the mainstream. But one of the things I'm arguing is that this kind of historical development, progressivism, or a kind of evolutionary model that one may associate with Jewish American history, or even a kind of Bildungsroman of the model minority, really misses how Yiddish or vernacularity or a kind of Jewish difference lingers and functions within this history. As in, it's not just about its success, or success itself doesn't necessarily mean anything if we don't understand the contours of its articulation, and also that that narrative that is frankly, nationalist or interested in a kind of building of Jewish assets or Jewish worth or proving Jewish worth within American culture really misses the complexity or dynamism or what we might call multidirectionality of Jewish American life. So not only that Jewish difference or Jewish vernacularity lingers, but that it is a determining factor or determining vocabulary of how we might think about Jewish American culture more broadly. And it also allows us to think beyond something like cohesion or continuity when thinking about Jewish American culture, right? It isn't this single thing that has a birth, a growth, maturation, adolescence, and then an adulthood and maturity to it. But rather, it's a thing that moves in many different directions at once that can be articulated in different languages and in ways that are not mutually comprehensible to one another. 
or also to think about that emergence not as a story that needs to be celebrated, kind of the success story of American Jewish life, but that one, one that we can think of as implicated and directly part of larger ideas of American empire, right? Is Saul Bellow a hero of American Jewish history, or is he part of a larger history of American imperialism, American literary imperialism, right? Thinking of the ways in which, if you think about how places like Africa or African Americans are articulated in, in Saul Bellow's work, one gets a very different idea of how we might celebrate his Americanness or what the great American novel might be when it is also implicated within American empire or the violences of American empire. So to sort of like think through that again, what does it mean to think about Saul Bellow as both a figure of American cultural imperialism, but also as a figure attached to his Jewish vernacularity or someone who is seeking to erase but also preserve his vernacularity. So that allows us to think about Saul Bellow in multiple ways and in multiple directions at once, rather than imagining a clear and successful genealogy that one might associate with Jewish American culture. You were talking about Ben Schreier's book, uh, which is titled The Rise and Fall of Jewish American Literature, Ethnic Studies and the Challenge of Identity. And there is in some ways like a deep connection in terms of the kinds of issues that you are dealing with about this question of what is the relationship between uh, Jewish literature or Jewish American literature with the broader cultural sphere. Uh, how is it that we understand it and how is it that we historicize it and how is it that we uh, then can kind of take some of those lessons and understand it about Jewish studies, broadly speaking. I think that part of what we can dive into here specifically about your book has to do with the question of the Yiddish audience post-1945, right? What is it about the post-Holocaust era that is posing a particular kind of challenge to Yiddish authors. I think this goes back to something that you mentioned very early on in our conversation, right, where you're talking about Besheva Singer and his idea that, like, maybe he's writing for millions, but maybe there just is no audience for Yiddish because this is post-1945. You know, so when I'm thinking about what does it mean to historicize this story, right, how is it that, that the post-Holocaust era and the question of Yiddish in this time period how is it that it is affecting what is taking place with these authors, but also how is it that it helps us to illuminate this post-Holocaust era and the question of Yiddish within it in a broader sense as well? The first thing, a bit of a corrective, as we know with all things, the post-war always begins before the war. Right? We can always trace the post to before. So similarly, particularly in the Yiddish sphere, but also elsewhere, the 1930s is where a lot of the kind of what we call a closing of the guard, a kind of consolidation of Jewishness or of the consolidation of the Yiddish capital around a kind of very particular community and a kind of ghettoized version of Yiddish culture starts developing already in the 1930s. But by then, for most Yiddish intellectuals, it was very clear that Eastern Europe as a place, especially Poland and even the Soviet Union as a place for Yiddish cultural um, thriving was rendered mostly, or for them, probably totally impossible. And already in the 1930s, especially with the closing of, of the borders for new immigrants uh, from Eastern Europe, the sense that new generations of Yiddish speakers were not going to come into being in America either. So there's already a sense of total threat and uh, disintegration of Yiddish culture in the 1930s. So much so that, you know, Glatstein, uh, a good Trotskyite coming up as a good socialist uh, in his youth, uh, would write an essay in the time period advocating for the Yidden turn over the common turn. Right? No longer interested in the communist international, but in something like the Yiddish international, whatever that might mean. And so you already have a consolidation of trying to think about what does it mean to produce Yiddish culture under constant threat, 
without any recognition from the outside, with little to no translation of Yiddish culture, with no Jewish population, Jewish American population that can appreciate or read the kind of complex, modernist, innovative, artistic things that are happening within the Yiddish community? What does it mean to make that art or to produce that culture under such circumstances? And add on top of it, starting already during the war, but certainly afterwards, the feeling of responsibility for that which has been lost. The idea that there needs to be elegy or that the literary act must in some way be compensatory for a lost past. This kind of need that is both nostalgic, but also wants to be deeply productive and generative, despite the kind of impossible situation that a Yiddish writer might find itself in. So the question is, what do you do in that situation? And what I have, one of the things I have in the book is I have this poem that Glashen writes in 19, late 1930s, in which he says, very famous poem, it was actually translated immediately into, into English, that he says, good night world, right? He says in this arch modernist poem, deeply playful linguistically, clearly indebted to American modernism, which he says goodbye to modernism, goodbye to the modern world. And I'm going to shut myself off. I'm going to go inside my little Daladamas, my little four-cubit space of the Jewish world. And it's a deeply, what you might call, ambivalent or deeply conflicted text that's both rejecting the world in the vocabulary of global modernism. So that's the kind of model that we have to think about in terms of the Yiddish cultural sphere going forward, both this need to close ranks at the same time as you continue to participate in global world literary genres, trends, movements, right? You are still modern because you write modern literature, though that world does not recognize you. You have no place in that palace of world literature, and yet you feel compelled over and over again to continue emulating and repeating those very same structures even without recognition. So just another quote from Gladstein, Irving Howe says that he'd said, I need to have heard of Auden, but Auden need not ever heard of me. So this sense of needing to be beholden to some kind of world or American literary value at the same time as that never being in any way recognized. Just to add one last part to it is that it gives the Yiddish writer tremendous amount of authority. That Yiddish writer, Gladstein, does not have to answer to American literary norms. He feels that he needs to copy them, emulate them, but he has responsibility first and foremost to what Glashen would say, first and foremost to the Yiddish language over and above any kind of communal responsibility or national responsibility even. So there's both, it's limiting, it's ghettoizing. The ghetto itself has permeable walls, of course, but also a sense of, well, I can do whatever I want, right? So Besheva Singer in the same way would say, you know, I can invent the shtetl past however I want it to be. There's no Yiddish literary republic that can judge me or control me. And I can invent Eastern Europe in ways that, uh, that are beneficial and useful for me in whatever literary kind of realms I want to exist in. Yeah, so then what does this tell us then about the transformation of Yiddish? What you're indicating here is really fascinating. The ways in which the kind of the, the breakdown of the Yiddish public, if we might call it that, it's not just a result of the Holocaust, but it, it is connected with questions of immigration. It's connected with Stalinism and the events of Eastern Europe prior to 1939 as well. So I think that by looking at this, you're indicating really interesting ways in which the transformation of Yiddish is taking place as a part of the Holocaust, but also beyond that as well. Yeah, well, not that Yiddish itself has ever been a stable thing, right? Yiddish itself is fractured into lots of different ways, but it's certainly this moment of what 
Jeffrey Chandler calls post-vernacularity means a, an intense fracturing of Yiddish as a symbolic object or as a site of semantic creativity. So that you can have this seemingly separate, although it's never really fully entirely separate, but a seemingly separate Yiddish sphere of elegy, of memory, of a kind of dirge-like capacity of Yiddish. But at the same time, Yiddish fractures into the American mainstream starting the post-war period. Even before that, right, if we want to trace it back to vaudeville and early Hollywood and Broadway, Yiddish is already fracturing into that world then, but it becomes more intense, more normalized, more blank in some way, more homogenized in the post-war period. And that too is Yiddish, right? The Yiddishists may be upset about it. Yiddishists may find it vulgar, right? Uh, Gladstein hated Philip Roth. He wrote vicious reviews of him and of Bellow and all of those Jewish American writers who found them to be culturally illiterate. But that is a place that Yiddish went to and became what we call the kind of schlocky Yiddish that we know of today, the sort of 10 Yiddish swear words that people know. But that is not an illegitimate, you know, not that Yiddish, I mean, Yiddish is a prude language, doesn't really have that many swears. But this kind of sense of a kind of translated immigrant, Yinglishified version of Yiddish is just as legitimate, if not in some ways more powerful than the kind of Yiddish that was protected behind the ghettoized walls that Glaston and others put up. I think it's really interesting that you just brought up uh, Jeffrey Chandler's notion of post-vernacularity, right? This brings us back to the question of translation, you know, that we started out with in terms of Isaac Basheva Singer and also just in terms of these other authors as well. I mean, I think Chandler's notion of post-vernacularity is kind of what you just referred to, you know, about the ways in which people don't necessarily speak Yiddish as a vernacular language, but it lives on in different ways, in cultural ways, you know, certain words filter into, you know, Jewish English, right? Or even beyond that as well. So that's a certain aspect of it. But I think we can also talk about, and this is where your work is really interesting here, we can talk about how we understand the translation of Yiddish works into English and their place within American literature or even within world literature as another kind of post-vernacularity, as you kind of referred towards the beginning of our conversation, that there are aspects of Isaac Bashevis Singer's works, for instance, which have this like kind of Yiddish tinge to them. Even though they are translated into English, they still are connected with the vernacular, uh, with the original language of the Yiddish. As you're thinking about the notion of post-vernacularity and trying to understand the place of Yiddish and of Yiddish literature in the wider sphere of American culture in the 1950s and beyond, but also before that as well, but you know, especially in the post-Holocaust era. You know, how is it that your approach to these authors is helping us to understand post-vernacularity on the one hand in, in new ways, but also just more broadly, the place of Jewish culture, the place of Yiddish language in the broader American Jewish cultural sphere and in the broader American literary and cultural sphere as well? I just want to push back a little bit on Jeffrey Chandler's term, which is you know, extraordinarily useful. But I'll, I'll give you an example. So there's Mike Myers, right? The famous Saturday Night Live actor and comedian, not Jewish, uh, but married a Jewish woman and had a Jewish mother-in-law. He famously brings into his famous sketch called Coffee Talk, he brought into the American lexicon the word verklempt. Now, the word verklempt is actually not very common in Yiddish. It is hardly attested to in the literature at all. You know, you would mostly say, you'd say, it's klempt me in heart, sort of squeezes me in my heart. But to say, I'm verklempt itself is very rare. And so it's actual vernacular, like a very specific vernacular, very local moment in which he's hearing something very specific that his mother-in-law said, and probably not many other people said. 
and he's introducing it and becomes the mainstream. So much so that I'm sure there are people, Jewish Americans or maybe just regular Americans who would say, well, I definitely heard someone, a grandmother, a great-grandmother say this word, when in fact they more than likely did not, right? So it is very vernacular moment that it's become very mainstream. It's not even post, right? It is, right, of course, it's fractured from an actual Yiddish-speaking public, is entirely symbolized and becomes part of a particular kind of post-immigrant kind of humor. Um, it has to do with a certain kind of association with femininity that Mike Myers is working with. But it's also a moment of real care in some ways that he has for his mother-in-law, at this real sense of communication, um, even as it's hot, funny and full of, of, of a kind of dark humor that's that we might associate with the scene. Of course, like you get verklempt when you can't hold back your feelings. There's like a threat of death of like being somehow uh, suffocated by your own feelings. So that's what I mean by it, it being fractured and finding various new and exciting and in fact generative ways to appear in the American mainstream, even as it embodies and in some ways participates in some of the more negative stereotyping that we associate with Yiddish in the contemporary American sphere. But to tie that into you know, some of the writing, like what do we make of Isaac Basheva Singer in English? What of Yiddish is making it into, into American culture or into world literature? through these translations, what version of Yiddish is being articulated in that way and valued, and what other versions of Yiddish still persist despite whatever control or whatever modes of ways which Isaac Bukhshever wants to clean or curate that Yiddish experience. So another great example here is from Saul Bellow's novel Herzog, and he, he quotes his mother having used this word trepwerter. Trepwerter means literally step words, and he makes it seem like it's an important Yiddish word that has no translation. It's sort of the only way he can think about this idea. And it's the idea of having, you know, you've already left the conversation, only then do you remember the clever thing you wanted to say? That's called trepwerte, right? You've already gone up the stairs, and that's when you remember the word that you wanted to say. So this is not a really pure Yiddish word. It's just a translation from, this, from the French, which I'm going to butcher right now, uh, l'esprit de l'escalier, which Bellow's mother would have learned from the French that she would have picked up near Montreal, where they lived at the time. We call this in English escalator wit or staircase wit. So it's not a pure vernacular moment, but really a moment of translation that Bellow dresses up as vernacular intimacy, as vernacular specificity. So again, this kind of fracturing of Yiddish that's not even Yiddish, or it is Yiddish and isn't, right? It's not even Jewish, or it's Jewish and something else at the same time. That's the kind of ways or genealogies or kind of paths that Yiddish takes as we move into the post-war period or even before. The notion of the world is an idea that you engage with deeply in the book, um, but also it is this broad question of what does it mean for Jewish literature to have a relationship with world literature? What's at stake in this question of the relationship between Jewish literature and the world as a whole, right? And world literature or universal literature more specifically. You know, why is that a really significant thing for us to think about, both in the context of understanding the literary history, but also the bigger issues that go beyond literature and thinking about the place of, of Jews in the world and the place of Jewish culture in a broader sphere, broadly speaking? So to return to the title for a second, I wanted to be very careful and not have this book be called Jewish American Literature and World Literature, but Jewish American Writing. So the word literature can imply a kind of staple identity. This is a kind of literature that we associate often with a particular national 
place, a place with borders, right? German literature, French literature, or a, a very, very stable category or a set of categories that you could put within a system like war literature or romance literature. And that saying something like Jewish literature or Jewish American literature implies that there's already a knowable entity. It's a kind of self-evidence that the writer is Jewish biologically, genealogically, or thematically in some way, and that that person is already inheres and coheres within a particular literature that can be easily identified as part of an anthology within a kind of world republic. And that I thought the word writing, as opposed to literature, the gerund, allowed to open that up in some way, to talk about figures that don't necessarily fit in or that all writers won't actually fit into the criteria prescribed in the word literature. Rather, there's a kind of opening, a kind of ability to, to track a kind of movement between different spheres of different kinds of identities or different ways that audience might claim a particular writer. What you're emphasizing here is a really important point, that there is a distinction between writing and literature, right? You know, I might write a story, but I'm not a great author by any means, right? When it comes to fiction, right? right? You haven't been claimed by a particular institution in some way. Right. So a person, you know, sits down in a coffee shop or something and they write a short story. That's writing. So this process of becoming part of world literature is both about reaching the status, you know, of literature in terms of how it's received by others, right? Whatever that means. But then it's also this question of which type of literature. Is it a part of Jewish literature, right? Or Jewish American literature or world literature or any n number of these different spheres. So it's both a question of the transformation of writing into literature and also the question of what sphere that's a part of. Yeah. And I think one of the things I wanted to do in this book was to critique the possibility of systematization. And this is one of the big things that goes into world literature theory today or world systems analysis or world systems theory is often trying to think about what are the ways we might measure the systems of circulation that govern you know, the circulation of books, the circulation of culture, and what ways might we imagine this as alternative to something like globalization or as utopian kind of way to rethink communication between people. But for me, I think the moment you start thinking in systems or towards systematization, you're already within what I would call a kind of imperial logic of control, of identification, of citizenship and non-citizenship, of recognizing rights or trampling on rights. And for me, this is sort of echoing a lot of post-colonial thought, trying to imagine what it might be to think about this writing outside of these systems or both implicated within these systems and trying to find ways out of them or what we might call a kind of subterranean mode of reading, reading against the grain. So reading these writers against their desire for the world, what else happens? What other kinds of writing, what else does writing do? What kind of uh, solidarities might it imagine? What other kinds of vernacular attachments does it retain even as it wants or is compelled to be part of these other systematizations? So I think that you are sketching out here some really important things about how we understand the development of Jewish literature and of Jewish writing. But I want to kind of press you here and say, so, so what, right? You know, what's the bigger takeaway here? You know, looking beyond these authors or even looking beyond written literature itself. Right. You know, in the sense that we can think about literature as a field that includes also non-written media, including film, TV, you know, performance, all these different things. Right. You know, so as we're thinking about Jewish culture much more broadly uh, in the 20th century, you know, what's the big takeaway here from looking at this engagement between what we would call, as you say in the title, 
Jewish American writing and world literature or world culture at large. So why does this matter as we think about the biggest picture possible? Well, one way to think about this question is where to place the Jew. So what does the word Jew do and how does this sort of discourse, the kind of stuff we've been talking about, help us rethink this concept? So one of the ways we think about it in terms of its multiplicity is that the word Jew makes claims on too many things and so many things at once and how to think about them at the same time or to think about implication in various different kinds of discourses. So if a writer is named as Jewish or a cultural actor is named as Jewish, they get claimed by a lot of different things at once. On the one hand, we might think of it as a nationalist or a religious specific community that this person is made a part of, a kind of Ruth Weiss model of a kind of asset for the sake of the Jewish people. But at the same time, we have to remember that even the world itself or the construction of worldedness or the idea that there might be a world is itself in part a Jewish conversation, right? The idea of the world or the a European conception of, of a totality of there being a world that needs to be redeemed, which we might think of as being very Christian, also has its own Jewish genealogies associated with it. Messianism, as we know it today, is, of course, also partly adaption of, a use of a Jewish vocabulary. So when we say, if I say that Saul Bellow is implicated within a kind of global American imperialism, that too may be part of a Jewish articulation of those same things, right? So there's a kind of overlapping of discourses that we need to acknowledge and investigate as we think about, uh, about these kinds of cultural flows, if you want to use that term. There is a way in which sometimes we think too small about Jewish culture, that we tend to think that Jewishness is a national example of a larger phenomenon, right? A, per a particular of a larger general universal paradigm, when in fact the universal paradigm itself may be constructed in part by something we might identify as Jewish vocabulary. Or take another trend that we that is very dangerous, has a kind of danger to it, is what do you do with the stereotypes of anti-Semitism when in times they are embraced by Jewish politics themselves, whether that be Zionism or certain kinds of diaspora nationalism in which, say, the stereotype of the wandering Jew is embraced as a positive thing, a positive kind of way to, to act in modernity, Whereas in other contexts, it might be the, the grist for anti-Semitic violence, these same kinds of Jewish parasitism, or even Jewish globalism, right? That term globalism, as it's imbued with a kind of not-so-hidden and subtle Jewish hatred. What do we do with those terms? How do they describe Jewishness, or how might we not reject them and say Jews are not globalists? They're just good at the economy or something like that? These kinds of stereotypes, how do we think about them, and parse the way they move in multiple different directions at the same time. I wish we had another hour just to talk about this question, right? You know, which is, what is the relationship between Jews and the world, right? And I mean, like, what does that even mean? That's like such a broad topic. But I think that, that there are a few different ways in which you have kind of touched upon it just in the, in the past few seconds, you know, and over the course of our conversation more broadly, which is the issue of what is the relationship between Jewish cultural production and the broader world, right? What is the relationship of Jews with the world at large? You know, are Jews internally facing or are they looking outwards? But also, and this goes back to another whole set of issues you know, about, you just mentioned globalism, quote unquote, 
which is a complicated subject. It is, as you mentioned, a fundamental certain kind of anti-Semitism, which is imbued in that entire discourse, right? But it's this long-standing question about the Jews. Jews have been put to the question, I would argue, at the very least, since Napoleon, right? You know, are you loyal to our country or to something beyond that, right? And we also, you know, a while back, uh, had a conversation with James Leffler on the podcast uh, about his book, Rooted Cosmopolitans, which was specifically about the, the 20th century history of this challenge, which was put to the Jews to say, you know, to what extent are you really rootless, you know, or are you connected to the place where you're living? And But also which Jews? This model of a kind of parasitic Jew is, is out of a kind of European genealogy of Jewishness, which does not apply in the same ways to, right, the various, say, North African, or the word Middle East doesn't really mean anything, but you know, Middle Eastern Jews and Persian Jews, what kind of relationship to empire or even to Europe might be ascribed to those kinds of vocabularies of Jewishness and worldness. Right. I mean, I think that part of what you're talking about here is about the way in which this conversation is rooted in a particular European and also American cultural sphere, right? There's a whole other world out there of Jewish culture that goes beyond Europe and the United States, right? Which is important for us to recognize in the same way that you mentioned earlier, that so many of the leading figures of this story are men, and we have to include women in it as well, right? But I think that part of what you're indicating here is the tension, you know, between Jews and the world, which is to say that on the one hand, you are showing us a handful of figures who have different approaches to the relationship between Jews and Jewish culture and the wider world. And the idea of Jewish culture being seen as a world culture is very attractive to many people, you know, who want professional success. They want to have an audience, right? They want to speak to millions, you know, not to nobody. But at the same time, there's a certain danger to that, which is that when Jewish culture is so closely associated by non-Jews, by people outside of Jewish culture, as being too worldly, as it were, that leads perhaps to certain kinds of anti-Jewish critiques, you know, certain kinds of anti-Semitism even, where people start to say, you know, Jews are part of the world at large, they're not connected to where we live, and so on and so forth. Is that kind of what you're talking about here? I'm thinking of, say, something like Saul Bellow, who hated being called a Jewish writer, because he, one, he didn't want to do PR work for the Jewish people, yet at the same time, being Jewish was a boon to him. It helped him. It was a cultural vocabulary that was being valued increasingly in American culture and was part of his cultural cachet. It earned him, in part, the millions, his ability to be that cosmopolitan Jew, to be of the cosmos, even as he always and repeatedly wanted to demonstrate he was of Chicago and of America in a very, very fundamental way. So there's this tension between the various vocabularies that can be attached to Jewishness and the different kinds of discourses around Jewish worldliness that can be associated with it, being proud in some way, the sort of Jewish pride in something like Einstein or Freud, and at the same time being deeply suspicious of something like a term like Jewish science and what that may mean for articulating a kind of Jewish perversion, right, through psychoanalysis or something like that. This you can read about more in, in Naomi Seidman's work, of course, on Freud and, and Yiddish. But that there's this idea of of needing to think about, or at least for me, to think about Jewishness and taking the sort of stereotypes of Jewishness seriously as not just things that need to be contended with and rejected, but actually as the discourses that constitute cultural, Jewish cultural production in the first place. 
there is no Isaac Besheva singer without his sense of, of needing to inhabit and impersonate the, a certain kind of Jewish stereotype to become a kind of the old world wandering Jew as part of his ability to be recognizable and legible in the global sphere. When you think about this notion of Isaac Bashev, a singer saying, well, maybe I'm writing for nobody. Maybe I'm writing for a lot of people. You know, well, we can ask this question about what is the place of American Jewish culture, whether that's American Jewish or Jewish American literature, right? Or beyond that as well. How is the audience of that kind of cultural production changed over the course of time where, you know, we could talk about authors on the one hand, but also like things like Seinfeld. And how is it that Jewish culture is translated both in a literal sense of the translation of Yiddish, for instance, or the translation of Hebrew literature, for instance, or any other Jewish language, right? But also the way in which Jewish cultural ideas or Jewish cultural production is translated for a very broad audience. Well, I don't want to open up a can of worms. We really haven't talked about race very much yet in our conversation. And that's where I would begin to answer your question is that one of the ways we might think about Jewish-American culture is a way into the problem of race in American culture. What do I mean by this? Is that one of the things that happens as Jewish immigrants enter into the American mainstream or create the American mainstream through vaudeville and then afterwards, starting in the early 20th century, and then certainly in the post-war period, is a deep negotiation of what whiteness might mean and a modification of that. As American culture began to come to terms with the problem of its ethnic diversity, especially with mass migration of African Americans into large cities and urbanization in the late 19th and early 20th century, the arrival of all different kinds of white or off-white people in the 19th and 20th century, and just the general change in what made up Americans in the 20th century, is that Jewish culture becomes a staging ground or some kind of Jewishly informed or Jewish vocabulary within American culture becomes a way to in some way negotiate many of those racial or ethnic tensions. If a Jew can become white or articulate its whiteness and retain its Jewish specificity or articulate the anxiety of their Jewish specificity, it goes a long way to trying to understand what it might mean to be American or name oneself American, especially in opposition to the racial minorities that are more identifiable and malignable and controllable in some way, like say African-Americans, Asian-Americans, Latin-Americans. And so even today, that like figure of the Jewish comedian or the side character who's funny and has a kind of strange accent or is self-deprecating in a way that we might identify with Jewishness allows one to articulate and provide a spectrum, at least in some way, of what it means to be racially white or to name oneself as American and have a blank racial identity in American culture. And so I'm thinking of something like the Beastie Boys, or even something like Seinfeld or Woody Allen as figures of male virility as a way to negotiate what whiteness might mean in opposition to blackness and the threat of blackness. I mean, that's like a huge thing to get into. But I think one of the ways we might think about the politics of translation or the tensions of translations, the limitations of translation, and the lingering of vernacularity is that it allows us to identify and think through the tensions of American racial identities, certainly in the 20th century and even to today. Uh, it's like on one foot, like a huge and enormous thing. <laughs> and I don't want to like overburden the podcast with it. But I think one of the sort of ways to think about when one enters the world through the American window, when one thinks about one's Jewishness through America, that kind of prism of racial passing, 
of racial almost passing as one of the sort of important ways to think about American culture in, in the 20th and 21st century. Okay, so I wish we had like another hour to get into some of this issue, you know, about the question of race, about the relationship of American Jewish culture with all these different issues. You know, you're describing the ways in which the development of Jewish American literature, especially in the late 20th century, is a function of, or at least in close relationship with the question of Jewish whiteness, right? One can also talk about the development of Jewish studies as a whole in connection with this as well. We talk about the relationship between quote-unquote Jews and the world, right? But the entry of Jewish studies into the university, to the extent that it has developed over the past 50 years and more, where Jewish studies departments are found far and wide, right? This is also, again, part of this question of the relationship between Jews and the world and the ways in which Jews and Jewish culture and Jewish history has been able to integrate itself into the wider world of scholarship or, you know, into the world of knowledge uh, and knowledge production as well. Yeah, I'll take my own institution as an example uh, for what we're talking about, where there continues to be at Harvard University no Department of Ethnic Studies. But a chair that is nominally or associated with Jewish studies, say something like the chair in Bible, is as, almost as old as the university itself, right? So where does Jewish studies land in this kind of uh, structure of, if we think of Harvard as an institution that is founded on a certain kind of establishment of whiteness, if we want to think about it that way? So one of the things I want to advocate for is a deeply comparative approach to Jewish studies, meaning it can't be uh, just a sort of ghettoized Jewish studies located in its own department or its own center, despite the fact that that's certainly how funding works in creating those kind of structures. But similarly, in that American Jewishness functions as a way to think about the crucible of race, one way to think about the crucible of race in America, I think Jewish studies can do the same way in the university. If we think about Jewish studies as comparative, not just interdisciplinary or in some ways, you know, temporally vague, but to think of it as deeply invested in its own and criticizing its, the own condition of its own existence. Meaning, you know, if black studies is constantly trying to figure out what the word black means, then Jewish studies needs to be constantly thinking about the, what the word Jew means and how that works across different kinds of disciplines, across different kinds of conversations, and across different cultural formations, not just within or for some construction of Jewish peoplehood. And that's what I mean by deeply comparative approach. And also taking into account in that comparative approach, the kind of privilege or whiteness that gets attached to Jewishness. So that Jewishness and blackness or Jewishness in the post-colonial can't be exactly the same. They have different modes of being and different kinds of discourses that get associated with them that don't allow them always to coalesce. In fact, they may conflict and that needs to be consciously uh, articulated and one needs to come to terms with that difference. So that it's not just that we want to apply post-colonial studies to Jewish studies, but that we need to think about what Jewish does in relation to, next to, in conjunction with, overlapping with, and in conflict with something like the post-colonial, the subaltern, and all the rest of, of, of all those different kinds of comparative potentialities. Yeah, I'm reminded uh, a while back, I think you were talking about teaching a course titled, quote-unquote, Jew Theory. I've taught it, yeah. It's a great course. The idea, I think, was to try to think you know, with the students about Jews and Jewish history in a similar way that someone might take a course on quote-unquote queer theory, right, you know, or something like that. And I only put that in quotes because to indicate that that's the title of a potential 
course, right? You know, but I think that part of what you're talking about here, and, and maybe if you want to reflect on your experience teaching that course, is how it is that looking at Jews and Jewish history and Jewish culture in a deeply comparative scope, how it helps us to understand much broader issues in the same way that like someone who takes a course on queer theory, for instance, just to use that example that I mentioned a second ago, you know, can take those ideas that they take from looking at LGBTQ people and their histories and their experiences, and then apply those lessons to understanding other groups and other examples and other things throughout history and culture. It's certainly a kind of crude term, this idea of Jew theory, provocative. But the idea is to think about ways to think about Jewishness as a mode of reading rather than a population or an archive that one needs to arrive at in some way. And in this, I'm, I'm taking a little bit or borrowing and adapting from Lyra Corbin Berman's essay, Jewish History Beyond the Jewish People, and other things written by a number of other people, including uh, certainly Daniel and Jonathan Boyarin. But the idea is that and this is sometimes coalesced under the term critical Jewish studies or Jewish critical studies or new, new Jewish studies, similar to thinking about right, critical race theory, critical Jewish theory, we might think of it that way. But the idea is that to think about Jewishness and its, its translational capacity or the stereotype around Jewish in-betweenness or Jewish placelessness as a way to think about, about critique and to enable a critique of of particular kinds of discourses that wouldn't be available otherwise. To imagine not only a critique of, say, nationalism or national identity by placing the Jew within or placing Jewishness within a particular discourse, but also trying to think about ways that instability works or the ways that citizenship works through the veil of Jewishness or beyond that, the relationship between empire and subaltern figure and where Jewishness might fit into that that it may enable us to have a different critique of the colonial or of the of empire that would not be available to us if we only focused on the subaltern, but to think about the kinds of modes of negotiation that might happen through the figure of the Jew. And I think this is sort of, you know, it's almost it has a kind of, if you want to put it back genealogically all the way, to kind of answering the Marx notion that, right, Jews are the arch capitalists, trying to think about that kind of sort of system-wide critique or a uh, discourse-wide way of thinking about something as being named Jew. We could think about the Yuri Sloskin's model as the Mercurian Jew as the modern, right? If we think about reading modern, the modern as Jew, or what the consequences are of reading the modern as Jewish in some way, as a way to actually think about modernity and not just the Jewish place within modernity, but using the kind of vocabulary of Jewishness, the various stereotypes and discourses associated with Jewishness as a way to read through, alongside many of these other discourses, the contours, structures, and problems of, of modernity. Yeah, I mean, I think in, in a certain sense, it's like the application of everything that you were talking about in your book, right? Which is to say, how is it that we can sort of take what is happening in the sphere of Jewish history, Jewish literature, and so on and so forth, and then use it as a lens through which we can understand the world at large? Yeah, no, the idea is like, rather than apply theories to Jewishness, which you can do and we should do, right? Apply post-colonial theories to Jewishness, but to think about them alongside one another or allow Jewish discourses to bring us to a certain kind of critical perspective or critical knowledge that wouldn't happen if we were always imposing other narratives from without. Or even to give up on entirely the idea of within and without. And to think about these discourses happening simultaneously. Can you give us the crib notes here? So like when we think about how, as you said, we can take Jewish history, Jewish experiences, Jewish culture, 
and develop theories that can then be applied to other things. So what are you thinking about here specifically? Is it just about Jews sort of as being an example of diaspora, you know, in multiple forms? And when you talk about this idea of applying the ideas about Jews as, as a mode of reading to other realms, to other areas, like what are you thinking about here specifically? I want just to go back to what we were talking about before, just to think about race. Race is a category which, you know, thinking through blackness to think about races, of course, should be one of the very central ways that we think about this, the construction of the dark, eternal other. But that, I think Jewishness allows us to think, to complicate that term and to read race through Jew theory, say, enables a very different perspective on what that might look like. That's, that's one way to think about it. I mean, I think that this brings us kind of like to the bigger issue of the podcast at large, you know, this whole idea of writing for millions, writing for nobody is there's a certain kind of central tension here that you're talking about in terms of these authors, but also one can talk about scholarship at large or Jewish studies in particular, right? You know, who is the audience for Jewish studies? I don't know if it's really millions, perhaps closer to nobody. I mean, look at the numbers of students who take a course in Jewish history or Jewish literature or things like that. You know, these are not usually the doorbusters right, where people are banging down the doors to get into our classes just, you know, for various reasons. Uh, Jewish studies is a niche discipline at many universities. So when you ask this question, or when we think about this question of, you know, what is the takeaway from Jewish studies, right? What is the takeaway from looking at Jewish history and culture? I think that's really what you're thinking about here. Uh, And what I've been kind of like engaging with in terms of the podcast for a while now. And I think that there are a number of ways in which we can learn from looking at Jewish history and Jewish culture, and then apply those lessons to other spheres. I already mentioned sort of the question of diaspora. You know, I think that like looking at the history of the Jews gives us tools to think about ethnogenesis, about how is it that that a group of people becomes a people. So where we can see, you know, you mentioned post-colonial theory, but also constructivist theories of nationalism, you know, are applied to the Jews in different ways to understand the development of modern Jewish nationalism and so on and so forth. But I think that part of what is exciting about Jewish history and Jewish culture is the ways in which we can look to the examples of how things developed in different places for Jews and then apply those lessons to thinking about the broader questions of, in this case, you know, the constructedness of nationalism. The Jews are not just an example of that, but they can offer us tools to think about how other groups do it as well. Yeah, so I would avoid the word apply. One of the goals of the book is to avoid an apologetics in which you try to prove the worth of Jewish studies to other fields. Rather, I want to think about it in terms of a kind of open field. Here's a thing that's happening. It's a paradigm that involves the Jewish vocabulary. How might it align with or run perpendicular to or converge with other kinds of discourses? Like that, that to me is a very different model than a kind of here's what I have, apply it to you. Applying it to some other discourse implies a kind of hierarchy of power in which the Jewish paradigm rules over. So think of something like diaspora, in which there's all these, there wants to be these claims that Jews own diaspora, right? They're the original diasporic people, where in fact, the word diaspora itself is not a Jewish word. The term diaspora comes to us from a mistranslation of of a biblical text. So there's like a power to thinking about it as an open field, right? Not that Jews own diaspora, but that there is a, there's a conversation in which Jewish discourses, Jewish vocabularies can contribute to a larger or greater or more complicated genealogy of that term. Um, I want to be clear, like, I'm not trying to suggest Jews or Jewish studies owns the concept of diaspora. I, I don't think that, but I, I just like one of the consequences of saying something like apply 
means that, that there's some kind of ownership over a kind of paradigmatic vocabulary, a kind of structure that is clear within a Jewish confound and that you then dress onto something else. Whereas one of the, one of the things I want to happen in the conversation is that you bring that concept or that structure into a field and then it actually crashes into another discourse and that they f- together form probably different things together, not necessarily one thing that's synthesized, but actually meet each other in their fragmentation. What is it that, that you're thinking about these literary issues, right, about the dreamt of audience for these Yiddish writers, for instance, can help us to understand why is it that Jewish history or Jewish culture matters, right? In the sense that, like, as I mentioned before, the, the question of the comparative approach to Jewish studies is often what people use to justify Jewish studies, right? In terms of this kind of discussion that we've just been having. You know, you're a Jewish studies professor at a university, right? You want to create a new course and you want students to come into your classroom. You know, well, one of the ways to do that is to to frame Jewish studies as comparative with other things, right? Or, you know, you didn't like this term apply, you know, maybe there are issues with it, but to say that Jewish experiences that we talk about in this class can be applied understanding other things, right, or can be in conversation with other things. And so, like, this question of why Jewish history matters, right, or why Jewish literature, why Jewish culture matters, oftentimes the answer people will give to that is that it offers us a comparative lens. But, like, you know, do you have something more to say here, you know, about sort of the challenge that Jewish studies and maybe the humanities faces in general, right, which is that, you know, to what extent, you know, we publish a book, right, you know, like, I think that that most academic authors uh, don't have any uh, dreams of grandeur, for the most part, like we realize that we are not writing for millions, you know, um, and that's partially because books are priced too high, you know, etc. sometimes, but also that the topics that we work on are very niche, very narrow. So this tension that you saw in terms of the Yiddish literature, right, of Jewish American literature, looking at this set of authors, how does it help us to understand this broader question of thinking about what is the audience of Jewish history and Jewish culture in general? when the numbers of people who are interested in these topics, they're not nothing, but it's not millions, certainly. So I'm going to say something somewhat blasphemous, but in keeping with the sort of paradoxical nature of Isaac Bresheva Singer's statement and the kind of openness that I hope I'm promoting in the book, and that is that Jewish history doesn't matter, or that it will only matter when it gives up on its hold on its, on its importance, in the sense that when you think comparatively, it involves sort of giving up on your authority. That is the best kind of comparative. The potential that comes with comparative work is giving up on your kind of ability to hold a certain position, that you allow that moment of comparison to destabilize or to render that identity, what you imagine to be your stable identity, to be, to be undecidable, right? So Jewish history doesn't matter, but it, it only becomes something that matters when that which it can do is open itself up. It's not about a lens or an ability to apply itself or articulate itself to another discourse, but actually the ability to allow, allow itself to, in some ways, fall apart, only to reconstitute other forms of discourses, or, or what Derrida calls a kind of telepoesis, a commutative making from a distance. So this ability to disarticulate yourself, disarticulate what might be Jewish and what mat- might matter about Jewishness as the condition for value. You know, I ask this question to people a lot on the podcast. You know, we talk about somebody's book, about somebody's research, about somebody's project, and we say, okay, so what? Why does it matter? And the answer is often, you know, we can apply X to Y, right? You know, or something like that. And a a certain kind of fundamental argument of this podcast as a whole, right? You know, over the course of 80, however many episodes that I've published so far, is this idea that 
Jewish history matters, right? That's where the title comes from. Um, but kind of what you are arguing here is, is that there's a paradox involved, which is that Jewish history doesn't matter until it gives up the notion that it matters, in which case then it does. And I guess that it's kind of like, a, it's like a riddle in a way. Right, or the moment, the moment that Jewish history insists that it matters, that it, it stops mattering. Well, I think that gives us a lot to think about. My hope with these conversations on the podcast in general, and we're limited to a certain amount of time, um, but I hope that, that, that these conversations will spark a further discussion. And I'm sure that we will continue this discussion as well, you know, both now when we're done, but also beyond this, because I do think that Jewish history matters, but part of the question is why and in what context and how it is that we articulate that. And I think that you've offered us a really interesting approach to the fundamental challenge of thinking about why and how Jewish history and culture matters. You know, through the lens of the struggles of these authors to try to find an audience, which is very much the struggle of Jewish studies on a broader scale. I mean, there's an audience for this podcast. People are listening to it right now. But, you know, when we say, well, what is the audience of Jewish studies? It's, it's fairly minuscule. It's more towards writing or speaking to nobody on the broad scale of things than it is to speaking to millions. And I think that, that that's the major challenge that we have at the moment as a field, right, which is about reaching people and trying to explain why it is that what we do has this kind of broader importance beyond an article which will be read by a handful of people or a classroom that has 20, 30 students or something like that, and that's considered a large course. I'm not sure I agree with the sort of numerical approach to what matters might mean, but I, I do want to just end by saying one of the things I've, I'm learning, at least from my writers, certainly from Jankov Gladstein, is that there's something more than circulation that comes in thinking about what what a conversation might look like, what a conversation might look like when the other person is not even listening, and how one might construct what one has to say, a book, a poem, a scholarly tome, as opening a conversation before one is invited to open it in some way. That's the kind of comparative or, or an, a sort of radical kind of approach to scholarship that I want to promote in my own work, rather than plea for someone to listen to me. Right. Well, there's so much more we can say about all of this, but I think that we're mostly out of time. So Saul, thank you so much. It's really just a pleasure to speak with you, to chat about all these different issues, to dive into, into your research and to think about the big picture issues that we take away from it. So thank you. No, thank you, Jason. This was great. And thanks to you for listening. Until next time, I'm Jason Lustig, and this is Jewish History Matters.